the story from God's word that kings and priests and prophets heard. There would be a sacrifice and blood would flow to pay sin's price. Precious Lamb of glory, love's most wondrous story, heart of God's redemption of man, worship the certainly glad that you made your way back tonight and of course um, there's a number of things we could be doing but boy I don't know there's anything better we could be doing than meeting with the Lord tonight and hearing from his word and uh, certainly glad that you feel the same way I do well I did uh, I did think it was important to share a couple things that might be of interest for instance I had even a good question to ask I mean what kind of jewelry does the Easter Bunny wear 14 karat gold. Okay. <laughs> one, on one Easter, a given Easter, this father, he was teaching his son to drive when out of nowhere a rabbit jumped onto the road. Slamming on his brakes, the son said, man, I nearly ruined Easter. I almost ran over the Easter bunny. His father said, it's okay, son. You missed him by a hair. Okay, <laughs> all right. Okay, so where does the Easter Bunny like to eat breakfast? I hop. 
Okay. Hey, why was the Easter bunny arrested? For her, for her oh wow. For, for harassment. Oh wow. Okay. For harassment. Ooh. Okay. Wow. All right. These are jokes for kids. Okay, so what do you call a line of rabbits jumping backwards? A receding hairline. <laughs> oh, boy. I like that one, okay? I can identify with that. All right, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 1. John chapter 20, verse 1. Let's begin there. We're going to read the first two verses of John chapter 20. And then we're going to look at verses 11 through 16 as well. But let's start there. John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, into the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. I want you to drop down now to verse 11. The Bible says, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And see, two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. They say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. When she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Boy, the great question that seems to be being asked was simply this. What have they done with Jesus? What have they done with Jesus? I mean, the two angels, they've taken away my Lord, she said, to the gardener, or Jesus really, but supposed to be the gardener. Mary says, if you've moved him, tell me where you moved him to. What have they done with Jesus was really what she was asking. The answer, nothing. They had done nothing. Have they taken him away? Nope. He is risen, as he said. He's alive and well. That's what's going on. Like Mary, we often find ourselves concerned that the world has done something with Jesus. And where's he at? We get concerned that the world has essentially removed the Lord from the past. 
When I talk about that or we mention that, I'm talking about virtually evolution. We look in 1859 when Darwin published his book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. This work had a profound effect on the world, especially in the 1900s. What was hesitantly accepted in the 18s became mainstream within 100 years of its introduction. I understand there were others that were writing before that. I know that, but yet Darwin seemed to bring it all together, and that's when things began to heat up. But it didn't heat up when it was actually produced or, or when it first came out. It was almost 100 years later before it really got major traction. The age of the universe is estimated at 14 billion years, while our planet's estimated at being 4.5 billion years old. The first humans emerged essentially in Africa around 2 million years ago. You didn't know that, did you? That was long before modern humans known as Homo sapiens appeared on the same continent, of course. There was a lot of transition taking place over those 2 million years, obviously. Classroom after classroom began teaching evolution as a theory, explaining the existence of the universe, explaining the existence of mankind. It's interesting, when you consider just some real basic truths concerning science, here's a couple of thoughts. In science, theories never become facts. Theories never become facts. That's science. It's a reality. Rather, watch this and listen closely. Theories explain facts. That's important to understand. So evolution being a theory is not a fact then. Evolution is a system by which facts are explained. Uh, Brother Mark Dombrowski was here just a few weeks back and he stood here and he talked about the fact that both evolutionists and creationists like you and I from the Word of God have the same facts. We just interpret them from a different frame or different mindset. Evolution looks at the theory of, of basically, of evol evolutionists look at the theory of evolution and they base all the facts through the scope of evolution. They take that and they say, well, it's because the earth is, uh, because the universe is over 14 billion years old and because the earth is 4.5 billion years old, therefore, this is how the facts are interpreted. We look at the word of God and interpret ours differently. But we are always apt, are we not, to apologize for using the Bible to prove our position. Now, why are we so hesitant to use the Bible as a proof or to, to use the Word of God to, to take those facts and run it through the Word of God and make it fit what the, the narrative when they're more than willing to make their 14 billion years and use their theory, which is not fact. It's just simply a means by which to interpret facts or explain facts. To do so. Why are we always apologizing? Why do we feel we always have to find, well, well archaeology says that the walls fell flat this way. And we did, I think we did find that on the Mount Ararat, that big old boat called the Ark. We don't really need any of that. 
I don't know how much faith it takes to believe the Bible necessarily. I, I try to. I try to do my best. Sometimes I feel like that man with his young boy, and he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. But what I do know is this. Evolution takes a lot more faith than what this book does. So evolution being a theory is not a fact. Evolution is a system by which facts are explained. And somewhere down the line, educators stop telling students that evolution was a system of interpretation of facts and instead insisted that evolution was fact. They sought to remove God from the past. God was no longer described or given credit as creator now. Scientists, educators, and our government insisted that God did not exist. They've done a good job of trying to remove God from our past, but let me tell you this. He is alive and he is well today. And it may appear that they have moved him, but he is still speaking if you're inclined to listen. Like Mary, we find ourselves, if we're not careful, being concerned that the world has somehow moved the Lord from the past. No, he's still there. But like Mary, we may find ourselves concerned that the world has essentially removed the Lord from the present. One would be blind not to see how God, uh, see how, um, God has been systematically discarded or deleted from our schools, our society, our culture, our homes today. I mean, knock on some doors today. Speak to others, and you soon realize how biblically illiterate people are. I mean, that's not a shot at people. I mean, if you said to me, how much do you know about the medical field? I'd say, well, probably not nearly as much as I'd like to. But then again, I'm not a doctor. And can I tell you, if you're not a Christian today, then you're probably very uh, likely not to spend a whole lot of time trying to learn about the Bible. And can I tell you, the world, it seems, is trying to steal him away. Somehow we feel they're trying to steal him away from the present. And you know what? They're doing their best to do that. And unfortunately, people as a result of that are very, very biblically illiterate today. Our society is conducting an all-out assault on God, the Bible, and Christianity. The themes that are expressed on television, portrayed in the media, and promoted online are not simply advancing sin anymore. They are abomination. Let me just say this, you need to be extremely careful what you watch on television with your kids, not just the shows, but the commercials. You and I can maybe look at those commercials and go, that's disgusting, that's an abomination, that's so ridiculous, and your children are being brainwashed to believe that this is normal. Be very careful what you watch even the commercials. It's unbelievable what they are ramming down our throats and telling us that it's normal when God's word defines what normal should be. If one were to arrive on planet Earth and spend some time in America, they may ask the very question that Mary did. Tell me, where have they laid him? Where is Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? 
as grave as the situation is and as helpless as we may feel at times, once again, I assure you, he is alive and he is well. The world may seek to remove the Lord Jesus Christ from our schools, our society, our homes, and our culture, and they may do a good job of it, but again, rest assured, he's alive and he's well today. Like Mary, we may find ourselves concerned that the world has essentially removed the Lord from the past and from the present. We may be concerned that They've removed him from the future. As the world has sought to remove Jesus from the past and present, they have consequently affected and impacted the future, have they not? Sure they have. I mean, again, any conscious believer whose head is not buried in the sand recognizes that there is certainly a long-term ramification as a result of these attacks upon Christ and Christianity. It's going to be long-term ramifications. It's amazing to me when we think about great communists that have lived in the world. I say great only in the sense that they had much impact and influence, not that they themselves were great people. Men that would say things like, give me a child till he's the age of seven and I will, he will be mine the rest of his days. Can I tell you that the, Lord, uh, the, the, the God of this world is wiser than men and he knows how to capture and ultimately chain and bind a generation. He starts with the youth. Our children are being indoctrinated in abominations. And it, do, it is going to impact our future, whether we like it or not. As less and less are familiar with the truth of creation or a creator that molded and made humanity, the more you and I shudder at how this is going to all pan out. As our children continue to be assaulted with satanic lies, insisting that there is no God and therefore there are no absolutes, we become more fearful for the future state of our nation and for our world. The future seems grim for God. <laughs> and it may appear that we're going to be, he's going to be missing. But rest assured, he is alive and he is well. Not just today, but tomorrow too. See, the real question really isn't, what have they done with Jesus? That's really not the question. The real question is, what have you done with Jesus? What have I done with Jesus? Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you just bless these next couple of moments. Help us, Father, to be found faithful to you. We love you. We desperately need you. Thank you, Father, for the services this morning. But, Lord, we've gathered tonight because we want a fresh touch from heaven. May you speak to our hearts and encourage us tonight. And may we, Father, remember always that, Father, you are on the throne. That no matter how grim or how dark the circumstances may seem, you're still alive and you're well. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.
The world may be trying to remove God from the past, remove God from the present, remove God from the future. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. See, I've, I've, I've read the Bible, and you've probably seen the end. He's alive, he's well. Now, I agree that there are cultures in the world that have seen God go by the wayside and ultimately it becomes a godless culture and a godless society. And may I say we are headed there quickly and to some degree we're in bad shape, but we've still got a long ways to go. We're scratching the surface of how horrible it could become. But the fact is, is that we still have a God that's living today. He's alive and he's well. And so it's not really what have they done with Jesus. Although we become very frustrated with what they're trying to do. There's no doubt you ought to be upset about it. It ought to just irk you to think about what they're doing. It ought to bother you that they're trying to dismiss God and discard him and even do away with him. That, that ought to bother you. It ought to bother me, but The real question isn't so much what have they done with Jesus, but what have I done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? So let me ask you, have you invited him into your life as Savior? You say, well, we're here on Sunday night. I know, and boy, I'm glad you are. But I had to have three points, and this is one of them. I had three messages this morning. I I, I had one through the week. It was the one I preached this morning. I had this one that I thought, man, I I came up with, I think it was on a Friday, it kind of started coming together a little, and I thought, wow, that that might be a Sunday morning message. So you got to throw in salvation, right? And then I had this message that I still have, it's sitting still on the computer as we speak, and and last night I got that about 11 o'clock, and so I thought, maybe that's it. So see, that's why I had to include this point, just in case. This is the one the Lord wanted me to preach because we're going to have a lot of visitors on Sunday morning, right? What a waste not to give them the gospel. And it don't hurt us to be reminded either, does it? Turn to Isaiah 53. We heard this quoted this morning. Rachel did a bang-up job on it, did a great job. She quoted this passage during the course of her dialogue. And again, what have you done with Jesus? See, that's the real key. You might even be here today, and maybe you've never invited him into your life as Savior. I don't know. I mean, only you know that. You can try and convince us. You can tell us. But the truth is only you really know. And so as we ask the question, not so much, what have they done with Jesus? (laughs) What have I done with Jesus? Have you invited him into your life as Savior? Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. I don't care how young you are. It doesn't matter where you're at in life or how much you've sinned or how little you've sinned. The fact is today is that Jesus Christ paid the price. 
It doesn't matter. Someone says, well, at least you didn't get into gross sin, meaning a lot of sin before you came to Christ. My friend, it took as much of God's grace to save you as it took to save the worst sinner in history. This idea somehow that God's saving grace for you wasn't as big an issue as the saving grace it took to say, save a, a, a John Newton who ultimately wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Can I tell you, no matter how wicked John Newton was, no matter how horrible of a man he was prior to his salvation, I'm telling you today that I don't care if you were saved at the age of five, or you were saved at the age of 15, or you were saved at the age of 50. It took the same amount of God's grace to save you as it took to save old John Newton. And every time you lay your head on a pillow at night, you ought to thank God that you're not going to burn in hell because you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God has been bestowed upon you. My friend, listen, you aren't any better than me. You're not any worse than me. We're all just equal sinners today. And we all needed Jesus Christ equally as much. Don't forget how much you needed him. The Bible says, surely he had borne our griefs. Those are yours. Carried our sorrows. Those are your sorrows. He did esteem him. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities and your cha the chastisement of your peace was upon him. And with his stripes, you're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all, we, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's all of our iniquities. I don't say those things to try to make you feel bad. I say those things to make you feel grateful. This second-generation Christianity is not working out too well today. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why is because you're not grateful enough for what God's done because you didn't think it cost him enough. You take for granted what Jesus did for you. But he did what he did because of you. And he did what he did because of you and you and me. Have you invited him into your life as Savior? Oh, I know what the world, we, we look around us and we see what they're trying to do. And, and we say, what have they done with Jesus? Well, what have you done with Jesus? What have I done with him? Have you invited him into your life as Savior? Number two, have you presented yourself to him a living sacrifice? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's turn there. You may even know them by heart. Probably two of the most neglected verses in the entire Bible in Christianity today in America. I suppose there's a number of others too. But I want you to think about it. If we would apply this verse to our life and take it to heart, all, a lot of other areas would begin to fall into place. Look what it says here in Romans 12, 1 through 2. And again, the Apostle Paul speaking, and you understand the context of it. We've discussed it often. The reality is, is that we look through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans and we recognize the mercy that God has bestowed upon us. We see that in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. We see it in 7 and 8 along the way as we see God in, in his uh, justification, his sanctification, and his glorification in our lives. The mercy of God being bestowed upon us. And then when we arrive at chapter 12, the apostle Paul steps to the plate and he says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
Those mercies I have just shared with you, those mercies I've written you about, those mercies I've expressed to you over the last 11 chapters of this letter, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then he goes on to kind of help us understand a little bit of what that might mean and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's so much wrapped up in this passage, isn't there? I mean, to present ourselves a living sacrifice. He goes on to say, holy, acceptable unto God. And he says, that's your reasonable service. That's just reasonable to require or to request or to expect based on the mercies that God has bestowed upon us, the many blessings he has extended to us. And he goes on to say, and be not conformed to this world. What in the world does that mean? I mean, honestly, in Christianity today, it seems to me that we have tried to strike that from the passage. Be not conformed to this, this word. It says, be not conformed to this world. What does it mean to be conformed? To be in the likeness of. Why is it that Christians are so adamant about being like the world? Why is it that we want to know the latest trends and the latest things taking place in Hollywood? Why is it that we want to be so in touch with evil today? We're, we're missing this element of conformity. We are conforming to the world instead of not being conformed. He says, instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That does not happen outside of a concentrated dose of the Word of God. If there is one basic fundamental reason why our minds are not being transformed, but instead being conformed to the world, it's because we are being inundated and saturated with the world's philosophy instead of the biblical worldview. Think about how much time you spend on your phone flipping through blogs and reading articles about what's going on in the world all the time. And then ask yourself, how much time do I spend in God's Word? And then ask yourself a question. Why do I find myself frustrated and, and, and feel more compelled to respond in a worldly manner than I do a biblical manner? We probably know more about the Ukraine war over the last month than we've learned out of the Bible about Jesus or anyone or anything else. Why is that? Well, it's exciting. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's new. It's, you know, see, that's where we make a mistake as believers, too. Do you know that this book is a living word? Man, it ought to be fresh daily. If it seems dead to us, then maybe someone or something is dead in us. And we're not allowing him to live. <clears throat> I'm not saying that he's not there. I'm just saying we're not giving him his place in our life potentially. Have you presented yourself a living sacrifice? 
not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Hmm. You know, Joshua, he's preparing to pass off the scene. He has led the children of Israel since the time Moses died. Now Joshua has taken charge. And man, I mean to tell you, he has taken them into the promised land and defeated so many enemies and established them in that new land, that promised land. And now it's his time to go. And at the end of his life, he challenges the people of God to make a decision, to make a choice. Here's the choice. Turn, if you would, to Joshua 24, 15. Of all the things he could challenge the people to do, here's the challenge he leaves them. After all those years of serving as their guide, their leader, in, the, in, in, in this pursuit of the promised land and their existence in it, their occupation of it. Notice what he says to them. Here's the choice that he says, oh, this, this I have to confront you with this challenge. I've got to challenge you to make a decision. Joshua 24, 15. <clears throat> and if it seemed evil unto you to serve the Lord, Choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now I want you to see something. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, then choose you this day whom you will serve. Okay, if you're not going to choose the Lord, then make a decision who you're going to serve. Quit playing both sides. Quit straddling the fence. Quit messing around. Get serious about this thing. You want to go ahead and worship Molech? Then worship Molech. But quit playing games with God. If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose you this day who you will serve. That's what he's saying. And notice he says, whether the gods of your father, that, uh, which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You want to serve their gods? Then serve them. Be At least be honest. Be, be real. Quit playing games with God. Quit straddling the fence. He goes, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You may not... You may think it's evil almost to serve the Lord. Do you, ever, you know Christians that kind of almost feel like it's evil to serve the Lord? Oh, oh, you think evil. No, I'm not talking about it's like satanic to serve Jesus. No, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about it stinks serving Jesus. It's the worst. I mean, you kidding me? Romans 12, 1 and 2, to, to present my body a living sacrifice to literally live my life according to his word, not to submit myself to the lust of the flesh, but instead to sacrifice that in my life, to die daily. Man, that stinks. That's no way to live. I want to experience the world. That's a mentality almost, I believe, that he's trying to express here. If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, if it's such a burden to serve Jesus, if it's such a mess 
to live for God, if it's all burden and bothersome for you, then identify who you're going to serve at least. Because you ain't serving God with an attitude like that. So figure it out. You're going to serve the gods of mammon? You're going to serve the gods of lust? You're going to serve the gods of preeminence and fame and fortune? Who are you going to serve? But choose who you're going to serve and quit pretending like Jesus is your Lord. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Make a choice, he says. Hey, listen, have you presented yourself to him a living sacrifice? Literally given, him, given up on your own desires, your own dreams, your own goals, your own future, and say, Lord, I'm in your hands. Do with me as you will. Send me where you send me. I will go. Whatever you want, I will do. I'm tired of trying to work it all out on my own. I'm just going to let you have control because you've already purchased me with a price. I'm just going to glorify you in my body and spirit, which are yours. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. The real question isn't, what have they done with Jesus? It's what have I done with Jesus? You need to ask, what, what have I done with Jesus? Well, have you invited him into your life as Savior? If you haven't, you need to. Have you presented yourself to him a living sacrifice? If you haven't, you need to. And finally, have you determined to share him with others? Have you made up your mind to share him with others? Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. What a tremendous group we've had out over these last couple of weeks. Man, it's been a blessing. Man, I tell you what, I commend the people of God. Man, you've just stepped up to the plate. We've seen God working, and again, we've seen souls saved. And uh, I mean, uh, can, could, we, could we do better? I think, well, of course we could, right? Of course we could. We could get more people there and hit more doors and win more souls. I get that, but I just want you to know right now, I've been extremely pleased with what God's been doing already and how he's using the folks that are coming out and those that are committing to the nurseries that don't necessarily come out all the time and say, you know what, I may not be able to knock a door, but I can go work in a nursery. I can uh, open up an opportunity for a soul winner to get out there so that they don't have to be tied down to the nursery. Man, I like that. Some of you ladies may not feel comfortable, may not be able to get out on those streets right now, but can I tell you, you could take your place in a nursery and you could fill a spot so that somebody could get out there. I want to encourage you to do that, please. We've had at least two ladies I know that have done that over the course of the last couple weeks. I'm asking you to do that, and I'm asking you to do it even on Saturdays moving forward, maybe on Tuesday nights moving forward. Have you determined to share him with others? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. I like this. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. The Apostle Paul saying we're ambassadors. I mean, we are representatives of a king in a kingdom. 
And may I say that as he begins to present the word of God in other books of the New Testament, we learn that you and I are also seated in heavenly places and that our citizenship is in heaven in the book of Philippians. If that's the case, then that means that you and I tonight are equally ambassadors of that country. And we represent our king and our kingdom. And there comes a point in our life as believers that we have to come to the conclusion that God didn't just leave us here to fulfill our own desires, our own goals, and our own futures as we see it. He put us here with a purpose and a reason to exist, and that is to expand his kingdom, to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors. See, mankind exists without God and without hope in this world. And you and I possess the key that can unlock the cage in which Satan holds them captive. We can offer them the light of the word, excuse me, the light of the world that can provide them with direction. We can offer them the living water that can satisfy their thirst. We can offer them the bread of life that can fill them with the fullness and satisfaction that only he can. Can I tell you, we can offer them Jesus. The real question tonight isn't, what have they done with Jesus? But what have you done with Jesus? What have I done with Jesus? The world will continue to seek to distance themselves, to disregard, to discard God and His Son. But what will you and I do with Him? What will you do with Jesus? Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together, Lord. I pray that if there be any that have yet to invite Jesus Christ into their life as Savior, that they would tonight. I pray, Lord, that believers that have been hesitant to present themselves a living sacrifice, would recognize the price that was paid and realize that they must indeed, based on the wonderful mercies of God, yield themselves to you wholeheartedly. And Then, Lord, may we make a determination, a decision to share the Lord Jesus with others. Lord, no matter what the world does with Jesus, he is alive and he is well. Lord, may you just help us to do the right things with Jesus over these next years of our lives. Help us, Father, we pray. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand.